We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly interview show where top chess players, authors, content creators, and accomplished amateurs discuss their careers and share stories and chess improvement tips. Perpetual Chess is a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and we'd like to give special thanks to our presenting chess education sponsor, Chessable.com. For more information about the show, you can go to perpetualchesspod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We are joined here by an old friend of the podcast and friend of mine, of course. But more importantly, she is the two-time U.S. Women's Chess Champion, the Women's Program Director at U.S. Chess, Mind Sports Ambassador at PokerStars, and, of course, award-winning podcaster and an author of Chess Queens, the true story of a chess champion and the greatest female players of all time, uh, which is an updated and... um, amended version of her prior book chess bitch and it is just being released uh as when this comes out it will be available in ebook and audiobook and paperbook in europe and coming soon to the u.s we will be discussing that in in due time but first let's welcome our esteemed guest to the show jennifer shahadi jen how are you hey i'm fantastic it's so great to be here 
Yeah, thanks so much, Jen, for coming back on the show, and congratulations on the uh, the pending publication. It will be published again by the time people hear this of Chess Queen. So as we record this, uh, last days of February, you're heading to London tomorrow for some book events. Uh, what's your life been like, Jen? Wow. Well. It's been really um, exciting. I, I can't wait to go to London. I'm also going to be seeing family in Israel afterwards. And after so many years of you know being huddled at my computer much more than usual, it's super exciting to get back out there and just like see people again. I'm so enthused. Excellent. Yeah. And do you have specific events uh, lined up vis-a-vis the book in London? I do. I do. I'm going to a a girl's school that my friend Alexandra O'Brien supports. I'm going to the London Chess and Bridge shop. Um, There's actually going to be a match uh, between um, Hal and Grandilius. um, And I will be giving a signing like, wow, that is all taking place. Um, Simon Williams is going to be doing commentary. So I'm um, not of the signing. I right. <laughs> that would be fun, though. Yeah. My handwriting's not that good, so I feel yeah. like he might have to be kind of harsh. <laughs> I think Simon could even make a book signing uh, entertaining as commentary, but but sounds like fun events. Yeah, and I'm excited for that match, uh, Grandmaster David Howell against Grandmaster Niels Grandilis and sort of a exhibition match. Um, and Jen, I should say right off the top, um, you know, of course, I've, you know, we're longtime friends. I make a tiny cameo in the book. So, of course, I'd already read uh, I'd read Chess Bitch many years ago, ago. And then again, in our prior interview, episode 50, 2017. But I greatly enjoyed Chess Queens and it felt like reading a new book. So congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. And, you know, yes, I remember that interview from three years ago and you had told me that it it held up well. And I was like, well, I haven't read it for 10, 12 years. So, okay. right. and, then, and then, of course, I, I reread it many times for this reboot. And um, it was it was really encouraging to um, see that uh, the the soul and the structure of it we're we're so strong that it, it could be resurrected. And I I, I didn't know that, you know, I, I really was <laughs> shocked. I was shocked because it had yeah, been so, so long since I really looked at it. So this was the publisher's idea. They approached you and they needed to acquire the rights because if correct me if I'm wrong, but the prior version was published with uh, Jeremy Soman and his wife's uh, publishing house. So how did this all come about, Jen? Can you walk us through it quickly? Yeah, well, I, I've i always dreamed of um, getting more into writing. Um, it has been my passion ever since I wrote Just Bitch, but I got involved in other things. And when The Queen's Gambit came out, I saw the opportunity to get back into that that world of, of writing. So I, I uh, linked up with an agent um, and... I also, at the same time, got an email from a publisher who was interested in acquiring the rights to Chess Bitch. And um, it was very fortunate because Silman James was really just happy to transfer them over. Um, they, I, they were very busy. They were vaguely interested in maybe rebooting themselves, but I don't think they really um, had the time because everything is just blowing up for them with uh, Jeremy's books and John Donaldson's book. Um, so yeah, they were happy to do it. And um, yeah, after that, uh, I, I, I dug in, um, and started recrafting it. Um, by the way, at the same time, I also sold another book to the same publisher, um, which is going to be coming out in a couple of years. Basically after I'm done promoting this one, I'm going to be like, 
heavily at work on that. So yeah, it's a dream come true. I mean, because of the Queen's Gambit, um, I think chess players, you know, just got so much more um, power to do what they wanted to do the most, right? So if you had made a life in chess and you were working hard in the game um, and promoting it like I was for so long, I could kind of choose my own adventure. And of course, for me, that is, you know, working with girls and young women and writing. Those, those are like my passions. Yeah, yeah. It's been, as I mentioned in our prior interview, it's been great to, to sort of, I mean, we grew up together, but to even watch you, watch your career continue to blossom and you crush it more and more um, in, in our adulthood. Now, Jen, I'm just curious about sort of the, the structural changes because it's a big undertaking. You know, you've got the book there, the prior book, um, and there's a lot of good material there, but you also, as you say, a lot of, a lot of time has passed and there've been a lot of changes in the world and the chess world. Um, and also you, you want it to feel fresh. So what were your conversations like with your editors and what was the actual work of recrafting that book as opposed to writing something like from scratch? Well, I think the, the thing is, it's really a combination of a period piece. And I think that's what's so sweet about it that, you know, two, like, I'd say like five years after Chess Bitch, you could say five to 10 years after you could say it's dated, like, se- like 15, 17 years later, if it's still holding up, it's not dated, it's history. And yeah. so <laughs> I think that that was kind of like the change in framing that this is a period piece about the early aughts and late 90s and what chess was like then and this kind of like precipice of it being 100% online. I mean, yes, for the young people listening to this, we did we did have chess computers back then, right? <laughs> but it, it it was it hadn't overtaken it quite as much as it has now, and um, also, uh, of course, it wasn't as nearly as popular as it is now. But there was that kind of glamour, um, especially in the European scene. So it, it takes you back to that reality almost twenty years ago. But then I also felt in the historical bits, it was important to update it. Like, you know, talk about what's happened with Judah Polgar since I wrote the book. Mention Ho Yifan, who wasn't around when I wrote the original. And also to update it with, with some of my own, um, you know, feminist um, and political views that have changed. Um, I am very, very proud of the fact that I think the book was extremely ahead of its time on a lot of issues, yeah. but I still have changed my mind on several things. Yeah, I, I agree that it was ahead of its time. I mean, merely the idea, I think, you know, thinking back to those times, I mean, feminism was a bit of um, a forbidden word back then. Um, and and again, just, just to have this idea to write about all these great female champions of the past was uh, something where, you know... It sure wouldn't have seemed like it was going to have an an audience. Um, But Jen, could you give us an example of a change, an example of something where your views have changed since you wrote the book? Sure. Yeah. Well, in the case of separate women's tournaments, I remember that in the original book, I wrote that they were a necessary evil, quote unquote. There was that phrase somewhere. Um, And I now see that as really internalized misogyny that somehow like a bunch of women playing chess because they felt like playing in a girls tournament or a women's tournament was a necessary evil. Like that's really harsh. And um, I of course have, you know, altered my, my views since then. And I, I just don't see it that way at all anymore. And I'm really happy about that, that I feel um, I have 
uh, grown to love and respect women and the great women of chess more. And uh, that that's kind of like the goal, I think, that with my book and my work is that it's a radical act to give the same respect and love to um, marginalized communities because our whole society is kind of telling us that they're not as important and that they're not as worthy. And that if they're doing something, there is like a negative attached to it. Yeah, well said. I I am um, definitely appreciated hearing a lot of the stories. I mean, obviously, there's the champions like Vera Menchik um, and Judith, who you mentioned, but uh, there's so many sort of lesser known uh, players who who it was fascinating to hear their stories. You know, like the uh, like Lisa Lane and is it Di- Diana Lani? How do you say your name? The but the the recent relatively recent American uh, great players. Yeah, Diana Lani. And then one other person, one other part of the book that I really kind of shifted my views on was um, Alexander Kostanyuk, you know, who is um, just obviously a legend, um, has been on top of the women's rating list for, you know, decades now. Um, In the first edition of the book, I was more critical of her, like, you know, uh, using her um, beauty and sexuality to promote the game. But now, of course, I see that she she was like, I mean, so ahead of her time. Like, right. really, she should be like a billionaire now. She was basically doing Instagram and like podcasting before anyone did any of that stuff. It's, it's pretty remarkable to see. Yeah, it's true. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's amazing because she had the sort of business savvy and self-promotion, but obviously a stone cold crusher over the board, too, with like, you know, so many accomplishments uh, dating, you know, to to the right up till now. I mean, with with her her recent results. So, yeah, it's it's fun, fun to see. And uh, yeah. And generally, Jen, hearing you discuss that makes me wonder, like, so you get this you know, you get this offer to update the book. I'm guessing one of the first things you have to do is actually sit down and reread the book. So what was that experience like? Like you're, you know, you're kicking around now this idea of updating the book and now you're sitting down to read this book for the first time in 15 years or whatever it may be. Like, how did it land with you before you could change it? Well, I was actually reluctant to um, reboot Chess Bitch. I, I didn't, I hadn't read it in so long, so I didn't really remember how good it was. So there's that like corny saying about like how we um, are, the biggest fear is not that we're powerless, but that we are powerful beyond imagination. And mm-hmm. I think that the shock, <laughs> the thing about reading Just Bitches, I was like, it was scary how good it was rather than the original fear I had which was that it was going to be impossible to reboot because I wouldn't like it enough and I wouldn't feel true to it. Um, and the reason I say that is because I was also working on another book. Um, and so when I say I was afraid, I was like, I have to make sure that my next book is as good as this one. <laughs> Whereas right. my original feeling was like, oh, I don't want to work on this. I want to work on the next one. Right. So, so that was kind of surprising to me um, that it it had so much um, insight and great stories in it because it had been so long and that it was revivable. Um, and uh, yeah, then I, I just had to, to abandon the other book for a while and really dig in. And it was an exciting and very, um, very intense process because uh, it was all done in a very short time period. So when when did uh, this all come into being? I mean, obviously, it had to be after Queen's Gambit. So do you remember like what month it was? 
Yeah, I signed a two. I signed a two book deal with Hotter in the summer of 2021, and then I was continuing to work on the uh, the first book because actually the original thought, the original thought with Chess Bitch was that I was just going to change it to Chess Queens, add an epilogue and a prologue, and you know update some facts. Um, it was once I dug in, I I decided to you know update it much much more extensively. Because uh, I realized that it was workable. You know, I, I didn't understand. And I think with a lot of books, you couldn't really do it. But the way that the structure of Chess Queens is, it was just possible to just like go in and like add things without it destroying the flow. I just think I got really lucky with the type of book it was that it was possible to do that. And um, I was listening to this incredible writer um, Kiese Lehman on um, a podcast, and he was talking about how he repurchased the rights to some of his earlier books because he's like really successful now. And when I guess his books came out originally, um, he didn't have like the influence and power he has now. And he was talking about um, just rewriting parts of it because he felt like as a writer, he was rushed by his editors. As a Black American writer, he felt like his editors were rushing him. And um, it just hit me when I listened to that interview, what a privilege it is to get that like second chance to update things that you don't agree with anymore. It's, it's really a gift. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, I, I would imagine so, but, but one thing I wondered, Jen, of course, um, there's an audio book as, as we mentioned at the top. And obviously this being an audio only podcast, definitely recommend interested listeners uh, check for it. And you shared a clip. Um, online at some point of you reading a, a section of the audiobook. And I've mentioned I'm working on a, a book here and there. And basically, like so much of the work is editing that to me, the idea of reading an audiobook is terrifying because I would just constantly want to change it. And I'm guessing at that point, it was too late to change anything, right? Oh, yeah, that's true. That's why at first I was, I was reluctant to do the audiobook because I was afraid of that. I, it's funny, you, you know, this, this interview is like so process oriented because you're a writer and a reader um, because, yeah, that's actually true. I was like, I'd rather have somebody else read it. But of course, I'm the only one who can read it because it's so, <laughs> it's so personal. And I'm also a podcaster and host right. myself. It would be it would be crazy for me not to do it. But yeah, like, <laughs> I was unless we could get Anya Taylor Joy. Of course. Well, yeah, that would be good. Yeah, probably probably <laughs> expensive though. Um, Impossible. Yeah. But yeah, there yeah. were there were definitely moments where um, I wanted to edit it. Um, absolutely. So yeah. my next my next book, I just need to record the audio book early enough so that if I want to, I can edit <laughs> edit parts. Yeah, but- it's actually funny because I think audio books and regular books they are different forms, and like I think like strictly speaking. They should have different um, texts. I really do. Like, I think audiobooks should be like slightly more repetitive because when people are reading them, um, you know, occasionally you might need just to like a refresher on on a a key fact. Whereas obviously in a book, you don't need that because you can flip through it. And that's why there's a lot of like original audiobooks, I think, that are just like specifically designed for that format. Yeah. And it seems like some like podcast studios slash publishing houses are playing around with the format because you can insert clips and it's much more vivid, you know, than it would be like a, you know, someone else's voice is much more vivid than a block quote, like that, that sort of thing. Um, 
that that you can do in an audio book that you can't necessarily. So maybe next time, Jen. But uh, but anyway, I'm sure it was an interesting process. But as you say, this has been a bit process oriented. So I think we should get to some of our favorite stories from the book, Jen. But first, we're going to uh, take a break and hear from our sponsors. Our friends at Chessable keep dropping new courses. Some of their latest include Play the Open Sicilian One by Grandmaster Miguel Santos. That's got 15 trainable lines that you can use to play against the Open Sicilian, kind of one-stop shopping for an opening that can be overwhelming to learn. And friend of the pod, Simon Williams, is out with The Harry Attack, fighting kingside Fianchettos after 1D4, along with I am Richard Palliser. And they've got tons of new stuff coming from Grandmaster Hans Neiman, Linear Dominguez, and the list goes on. And all of their courses, of course, utilize space repetition to help you remember the opening or tactical sequence or end game that you learn. So be sure to go to chessable.com and take a look at what is new. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we are back. And of course, we each have our own favorite stories from the book. But one that I had to ask Jen about that I was super excited to to hear more details about is, and somehow it escaped my attention previously, is Susan Polgar, of course, legendary um, grandmaster and and uh, one of the Polgar sisters and American ambassador for chess these days, even though she was born in Hungary. In the early 90s, she was competing to try to win the world championship. And it turned out that in a match, uh, to determine who played Zijun for the world championship, she um, the match was decided by a coin flip. Um, I always complain about tiebreak formats, even to this day, uh, in tied matches. But to see that they couldn't determine a winner and then just said, all right, let's do a coin flip, I couldn't believe it. So Jen's going to read us an excerpt from this if she is ready. Are you ready, Jen? Yes, let's do it. So after three mini-matches, Susa and Nana were still deadlocked. At that point, a bizarre FIDE rule came into play. If, after 12 games, a tie has not been broken, the match can be decided by the drawing of lots. To no one's surprise, Susan was opposed to the unorthodox tie right. FIDE also agreed that the rule was unfair. If Susan and Nana both consented, the tie could be broken by more usual methods. However, Nana, who must have understood that she was the weaker player, took the logical position that she preferred a 50% chance by drawing lots. An absurdly complicated ceremony was staged to determine the winner. First, the wife of the organizer picked between two envelopes, picked out the one that read Nana Ayosiliani. Then, Ayosiliani chose between two more envelopes. The paper inside that one read Susan Polgar. Then Susan was asked to pick <laughs> between two boxes offered by the arbiter. If she selected the gold coin, she would be the new champion. When she opened her box, Susan's heart dropped. Inside was a silver coin. My eyesight was blackened for a few seconds. My eyesight was blackened for a few seconds. I thought I was fainting. The meaning was clear. You are second. Yeah, I mean, 
this is you're right as a poker player it's it's hilarious because i'm like wow this sounds like a high stakes game of ccr credit card roulette right yeah or uh rock paper scissors (laughs) because it's like they don't just do it the simple way like flip a coin it's like no you have to like you know get the get the drama out like take all of the credit cards that aren't going to pay for the meal right by one by one right and then Uh, as a poker player another thing about this section that's really interesting when i when i originally wrote chess bitch i didn't really play poker um which comes up like later in the book and in the original draft of this, I was a little more sympathetic to Susan Polgar's side. I was like, you know, Nana should have been willing to, like, decide it over the board like a chess player. Whereas now, obviously, as a poker player, I'm like, she's 100 points lower rated. Like, she got this far. Of course, she should want a 50-50 chance. That's just math. Yeah, well, I'm impressed. I mean, I feel like even though... Um... Even though I agree with with your analysis from like sort of a game theoretical perspective, obviously she should uh, favor randomness. Um, I feel like it's still rare for a chess player to accept that. I mean, it's such a, you know, you have to be so good to advance to that level. And as you talk about in the book, I think you have a quote from Kaidanov um, relating to the importance of uh, confidence. Um, and, oh, uh, oh, where he says it's better to be overconfident than underconfident. So. The idea of needing to be overconfident and then at the same time being able at that moment to be like, you know what, coin flip sounds good to me. I don't want to actually play another chess game against this player 100 points higher rated than me. It's it's pretty funny and also just like so, I mean, it's nice that they tried to dress it up as a spectacle, but obviously I'm a strong proponent of uh, actually playing chess to determine the winners of uh, chess events. Yeah, but I, I think that what we see is uh, there's not enough planning in advance. Like, you know, my brother is a wonderful chess organizer. And one thing that he does really well when he looks at any kind of like structure or tournament is he's like, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? Yeah. And like, like, what, what is the worst thing that, and you know, well, you come to this, that like you have, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people watching online and, you know, rooting for their favorite player and you um, decide it by a coin flip. And then then you rewrite the rules based on that, that, uh, that circumstance. I think, uh, I, uh, I think that not, not doing that and then expecting the players to revise it on the spot is like the worst outcome to like guilt trip them and be like, Oh yeah, well you should be a real chess player. You should be willing to play. And I, that's, I don't think that's good. I don't even think they, honestly, I don't even think they should be asked. I think when there's an unfair tie break system and the players contractually agree to it beforehand, I think they should just like uh, honor it no matter what. Yeah. I mean, for all of my grumbling about uh, situations where where the tiebreak is not decided by chess, it's decided by strength of opponent or whatever it may be. I, I'm not an advocate of changing it right then, right there. Like, like you say, uh, these contingencies need to be thought of in advance. But yeah, I mean, the next time I'm ready to complain about like uh, Sonberg burger tiebreaks or whatever, whatever it may be, I'll, I'll remember this coin flip and, you know, remember the, uh, the dictum that uh, things could always be worse. Um, but, but it was a, it was a funny story. And yeah, there, there's so many memorable stories in the book. Oh, but one more follow up on this before we move on. So it sounds like you had a lot of insight on this match. Is this available on YouTube? Did you find footage of the uh, tiebreak? I didn't find footage of it, but you know, Susan has written a couple of books. So some of it is from that. And there is also, um, you know, there is also a lot of articles written about it, but this was so long ago that um, it would be great if there was footage. I'd love to see it. Yeah. But, I mean, and it's I gotta be somewhere. 
I've yeah. seen like photographs. I'm not sure if there's video. That's an excellent question. If there was video, it would be great if there was. Yeah. Um, because of course it's like a wonderful arc to Susan's story because like Susan Polgar's um, story had so many, um, you know, pitfalls and arcs, right? Like losing yeah. this match on a tie break and, you know, not being allowed to play in the world championship. Like she, she encountered a lot of resistance and it's kind of like interesting to like compare the story of her to her sister, Judith, who of course um, all of your listeners um, probably know that she's the greatest female player in history um, peaked at like the top 10 players in the world. Number eight, um, very, very different arcs. It really yeah. felt like smooth sailing for Judith in so many ways. Yeah. And as as is alluded to in the book, I do think like Susan paved the way. I mean, first of all, Judith's already in a chess household now with like super strong older sisters, which, you know, uh, definitely helps um, helps her development. But yeah, just in terms of like all the barriers that Susan had broken, I'm sure that that made made things a little less bumpy uh, for, for Judith. Um, and Another favorite thing about my book, about the book, Jen, for me is, again, just all these little stories about players. But also I was particularly struck by like how different women's chess can be received in in different countries. I mean, you go extensively into the history of uh, Georgian chess, which, of course, there's uh, so many legends. And then you tell the story of Marta Fierro, who was recently uh, did a fun interview on your your Ladies Night podcast and uh, who, of course, is like um, queen of Ecuador, basically, um, and doing great work promoting chess and working with kids there. Um, But it made me wonder, like, what do you think goes into these different chess cultures in different countries for for women in particular? Yeah, I think when I originally wrote it, that was one thing that fascinated me, how chess could be, because it's an international game, it could be a prism for feminism and women's rights in different countries and kind of force us to look outside our box, to not just be thinking about, like an example would be um, the women's grandmaster title. A lot of people are negative about it because they have this knee-jerk reaction, like why should we have to qualify women's grandmaster? And while I do agree with that in some respects, I also think because chess is an international game, you're you're forced to think, well, wait a second, is that is that true? I mean, in some countries, like women's grandmaster can allow a woman who would normally not be expected to um, play chess professionally at all could allow her to be like a hero for her entire country, right? Um, she could be the first women's grandmaster ever for her country. Um, like for instance, Nadia Ortiz from Colombia first WGM ever now is a successful um, software engineer at Apple and um, is giving back in so many ways, wants to start a mental health um, nonprofit in Colombia. So I I think it just chess being an international game forces you to think about feminism globally, not just in your own locality, which I think is really um, important. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and it's it's interesting, like, just, again, seeing how these people are received differently. Like, Marta, of course, grew up in the United States partially. So uh, I remember her from from our childhoods. But but I had no idea that she's like, uh, basically a household name. Like, you know, she's been she mentioned in your interview, she's been on the preview role of like movies when you go see movies or pictures on buses like it's 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 amazing to to um to see the difference from country to country yeah and martha is uh is one of my favorite characters in the book as well um she's just so amazing and i pointed out that when i was 
probably about 1400. I mean, you knew me at the time. I was like playing chess for a while and I was still so low rated compared to like my brother and you and some of the other kids on the Masterman team. Um, I went to a tournament in Washington, D.C., and it was just like one of those Swiss tournaments. And I was probably playing in like the under 1600 or something. And Martha was already like 2200 plus, And she like seeked me out to like just be friendly to me. And that was, and, and, and not only was she friendly to me, but she told me about her like international adventures, like going from country to country, playing chess and meeting all the top players in the world. Now, you know, for me, that was just like, like super um, thrilling that this great player was just like befriending me. Um, and I think experiences like that can be really formative. Yeah, formative and, and life changing in some some cases. Yeah. And and it was fun. Yeah. Hearing her stories of sort of jet setting and uh, Grandmaster Stefanova seems like uh, she's always the life of the party. And, uh, you know, um, in addition to obviously her her amazing chess accomplishments, it was it was fun to, to hear this side because I feel like even even among men chess players, um, so much of what you read might be focused on on the board, but I mean these these women that you wrote about in many cases were like quite well rounded and sort of uh, bohemian types. That's true. Though a lot of them are, yeah. I mean, it, there's that range. Some people are are using chess as a way to execute discipline and become as good as they possibly can and improve their life as much as possible. Like you know. So many players are very disciplined in the book. But then there's the other side where chess is actually like a vehicle for a life of adventure and fun. And obviously there's a lot of overlap, but I I I, I did I do think that it's interesting there's that that variety. Like Stefanova, of course, um, who's now, by the way, in, in Bulgarian politics, which doesn't surprise me. I mean, a lot of these um female chess champions are extremely charming, charismatic. And if you're really intelligent and really charismatic. I mean, that's usually a really good recipe for politics um, because you also see um, the Lit Lithuanian um, Grandmaster Smilite is, is a huge big wig in politics in Lithuania. She is the um, leader of the Li Liberal Movement Party and the Speaker of the Parliament, I believe. Yeah. And then there's also Stefanova. Um, I think Martha was involved in politics. Xia Jun. So a lot of these women um, do have some political careers at some point in their life. And I, I think that uh, it's just amazing the different types of personalities that can excel. But going back to the bohemian lifestyle, that what's, what's fun is that dates back to one of my favorite characters in the book, Sonia Graf, who yeah. was the vice world champion. She was always like the bridesmaid, the runner up to the eight-time world champion Vera Menchik, who was just like the Judith Polgar of her day. Like nobody was close to her. But Sonia Graf was getting a little bit closer. Um, Sonia Graf was a character. She uh, used chess to travel the world. She um, had a very troubled family life and she wanted to escape it, kind of find a new family through chess. She talks about like finding her passion for life and her family through chess. Um, she um, really enjoyed the attention that she got as a female player, and she was upfront about it as well. So um, she said that without false modesty, she had strength in many areas, <laughs> and she wanted to dedicate her life to chess, glimpsing through to a future interesting life, a panorama of travels, independence, magnificent liberty, and a means to know this large, cruel, and beautiful world public applause infiltrated each part of her body like honey. 
giving autographs years later, just like a movie star, made her feel famous and loved. Yeah, I mean, amazing. So far ahead of her time. I mean, we're talking about the 1930s, right? Yeah, that's right. And she was um, anti-fascist. She spoke out against the Nazis. Probably would have been killed in World War II. But she was lucky enough to be in Buenos Aires in 1939, September 1, and, you know, decided not to go back because she probably realized that she would have gotten killed and just start a new life in Buenos Aires, which, you know, uh, famously Nydorf did as well. Right. Yeah. So, and of, and of course, Vera Menchik did, did not survive World War II, uh, unfortunately. No, she didn't. She did go back and she didn't survive. And yeah, very sad because it was toward those last days of the, of the war that she died. Uh, and that, that was, well, I guess there was still a, almost a year until it officially ended, but it was like, a crumbling Nazi regime. Like people realize that they um, were um, going to lose, but yeah, they were still dropping bombs on London. And one of them killed our beloved Vera Menchik, um, only 38 years old. You know, when, when people talk about the history of women's chess and say that women, you know, underperform, and there are people who say that, like, why aren't women doing even better in chess? There's so much promotion and resources. Like you look at, Varamenchik dying at 38 years old. I mean, we got extremely unlucky with our history. Yeah. I mean, who knows what she could have achieved? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a good point. She was an amazing player and yeah, still, still had more, much more to achieve. Um, so Jen, on the topic of, uh, of women chess players, we have a Patreon question from friend of the pod, Han Shu. Han of course is a regular contributor to new in chess magazine and had, uh, two of his daughters, were quite strong uh, chess players. I mean, they are quite strong chess players, but they're now uh, in their 20s and uh, working for Google and the like. Um, so Hans' question is, he says, uh, thank you for everything you are doing for women's chess and women's rights. I admire your courage to fight for these causes and stand in the wind. And he had a couple questions, but we'll start with this one, which is, why do you think many girls are quitting chess around the age of 14 to 16? Is it just the toxic environment or are there other things going on, like girls having more diverse interests than boys? What do you think needs to change to retain more girls and women in chess? Great question. So girls dropping out at 12, 13, 12 and 13 is often the ages they drop out. Maybe in Europe, it's often 14. Um, I think that there is a couple of things. First of all, uh, it's normal for adolescents to stop playing chess. It happens with boys as well. Uh, it's just that it happens at a slightly higher rate for girls. So that's really the question. Why do more girls drop out of chess as teenagers than boys? And I think that it's a critical mass problem because because there are so few girls, if you're um, one of three 13-year-old girls who play chess and your other two friends drop out, now you're the only one. And for some cases, that can be great. You know, people can use it to like represent their country internationally. But that's that's the, uh, you know, the, the tail end situation. In most cases, the girl will just go on to something else. But if we if we can increase that number to 10, now even if the, even if like half of them drop out because they are more interested in music or science or whatever interesting thing they're they're running to spend their teen years in, then we still have three friends, right? Right, yeah. So that's why one of the most important things we do at US Chess Women is these girls clubs where even at um, events where you mix boys and girls in the same section, like the National Scholastics, we have a special room for girls to get together between the games 
and analyze, make friends. And we do it online as well, which is particularly powerful. It's like funny, obviously, a lot of the online pandemic programming is, you know, shifting back live. But I think the online girls programming is going to stick around because it is that powerful link to teenage girls from across the country who might not have a girl who plays chess in their school. Yeah, it's it's an amazing initiative and you've had an incredible speakers and I'm glad to hear that it will persist because as you mentioned like the this this question of like needing a critical mass uh, obviously, uh, taking advantage of the scalability of the internet and making you know these classes, you'll have a hundred people in there, two hundred people uh, being lectured or you know told stories by Judith Polgar or Kasparov about Queen's Gambit or whatever it you know so many uh, awesome guests and I do think like something like that you just it would be too impractical to replicate in real life so definitely um a small benefit of the uh otherwise uh, tremendously unfortunate pandemic yeah yeah and then of course the, the the harassment and um the um attention the extreme attention that girls get that can be um you know very very uh, off-putting to some i mean obviously because we see that they leave so um, yeah and, and and for some for some uh, the attention is a positive, but I I think that we have a survivorship bias in chess, in that we ask the women who still play why they play and what they like about it. But that it's possible that the women who do play are um, specifically gifted with a certain either personality type type or support system that allows them to keep playing where others would drop out. Like in my case, of course, I have my family. Yeah. Made it really easy to hop back into the game. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you did drop out for a bit nonetheless, as you've discussed and written about. Yeah. And to the point of uh, the, the undue attention, I was really struck by the quote from, uh, from Rachel Crotto in your book where she said, uh, I'd like to know how it feels to be invisible when you play. I always felt like I was on trial at these tournaments. Yeah, that that really resonated with me as well. This idea that if you were the attraction of just being an anonymous man, of course, there are men who complain about the fact that women get so much attention and opportunities, but you don't really hear about the flip side of it, that a woman just wants to kind of like disappear into the mass of players at the world open and just be left alone to play chess. And I thought that was beautifully stated. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Well, well, Jen, we're going to take one more break and then we've got some more listener questions to hop into. Does that sound good? Sounds great. Okay. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by BetterHelp.com. If you're struggling with depression, anxiety, or another mental health issue, BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist in under 48 hours. It's professional therapy done securely online. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions or send a message to your therapist as needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. If you go to their website, you'll see lots of testimonials such as this one. Working with Kendall Bradford on transforming my thought patterns has been very helpful on my journey to improve my mental health. You'll read lots of others like that as well if you go to the website betterhelp.com slash chess that's betterhelp h-e-l-p dot com slash chess and 
And if you use that URL, you get 10% off for your first month of use. More details are in the show description. Listeners, I've got good news. I know you're looking for an update on my AIM Chess analytics, and I'm happy to report that I'm now only behind on the clock in Blitz Chess 69% of the time. Huge progress. So if I can keep up that 2% improvement in no time, I'll always be ahead on the clock and I'll probably win more games because of it. And of course, with aimchess.com, you can use their algorithm to dissect your own game, look at trends from openings, different phases of the game. Uh, And of course, they give you actionable puzzles based on whatever your strengths and weaknesses are. So go to aimchess.com and check it out. They automatically scrape your games from the major chess playing sites to give you the insights you need to work on your game. So if you go to aimchess.com and decide to subscribe, be sure to use the code PERPETUAL30. Links in the show notes. So let's get back to the show. And we are back. And of course, uh, Jen and I have a, a shared interest in history with uh, with poker. I know that not everyone listening does. And when I re-listened to our prior interview from December of 17, I will confess it was a bit heavy on the poker talk. So it wasn't on my agenda to discuss it more, but we do have some listener questions uh, related to that topic. So um, we we will hit these, but hopefully, uh, you know, as I discussed with uh, Oliver Roeder, I think that there's as long as we don't get too deep in the weeds, I think there's applicable lessons from all many games and walks of life uh, uh, in terms of um, comparing games and comparing disciplines and thinking about how to approach and improve at different ones. But we'll start with the softball, Jen, uh, which is from friend of the pod, Alex Friedman. Thank you for supporting Perpetual Chess, Alex. And he just asked chess or poker. So don't mess this up. We're on a chess podcast here, Jen. <laughs> okay, got it. Chess. Chess. <laughs> good. All right, good. Good job. Good job. Um, I don't know if you have more to say about that, but we have another question if you're ready. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, the next question is another friend of the pod, Chris Wainscott, who asks, he says, when is Poker Queens going to be written? Great question. Um, a Poker Queens. Yeah. You know, I think that um, I have a, another book to write and it's not Poker Queens, but I, I do um, greatly admire the the women the women of poker it would be a little bit more difficult to pin down because poker is not like chess you don't have the um the world champions and the champions so i think it would probably be a little bit more impressionistic yeah although i i mean i do think someone could pick that up and run with it i do feel like there's a lot of um prominent female players doing a great job promoting the game but still like some sort of historical sweep biography um could be good although you know, uh, what What differentiates chess queens is your own story. That's what makes it great. So it would be great if it was someone sort of intertwined uh, in that world. Um, yeah, well, I, I also play poker, but I think one of the things that, um, you know, I'm a, with poker stars and I also signed with this women empowerment organization, Poker Power, that like wants to bring more women into the game of poker to make them better business people. Um, but that said, I think you talked about this a little bit in your interview with Oliver Roeder. And I think one of the things that makes chess and literature and history such a beautiful fit is that you have all those game scores and it's so fortunate because you really are able to time travel and really feel what it was like to be Verimenchik because you're watching her play Capablanca. You're feeling her play Sonia Graf and winning all these games and traveling the world. Unfortunately, in most games, 
you don't really have that. So that doesn't mean, I mean, there's great stories you can tell around poker. I mean, there have been some wonderful movies and books. And, you know, my friend Maria Konnikova wrote this great book, The Biggest Bluff. So there is, it's definitely possible. But from a historical viewpoint, I think we are very, very lucky in the world of chess to have all these game scores that can allow us to time travel. Yeah, yeah. Biggest bluff. I greatly enjoyed it as well. And you don't really need to know that much poker to to enjoy the story. And it, yeah, it does have some parallels um, from your book. And of course, she uh, has a, a glowing quote about the book on the, uh, the back cover, a well-deserved one, I might add. Um, and we have one more uh, chess poker combination question. This one, I think, is... Uh, it should be interesting. Again, it's from uh, Han Shu. Thanks for the thanks for supporting the pod, Han, and thanks for the great question. Uh, so Han writes in and says, uh, during his commentary on Nakamura Aronian, Grandmaster Daniil Dubov explained his approach to engine use. He compared it to poker. He selects variations that might be borderline correct, but holdable with best play. There's probability involved, such as what is the chance the opponent knows this line, and bluff slash gamesmanship in trying to lure the opponent into unknown territory where he's un- where he's uncomfortable. Did you yourself apply any poker strategies to chess? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I love what you say about Daniel Dubov. I've noticed that starting with Magnus Carlsen. Yeah, um, for you, sure. You really see um, chess players talking about chess as if it was poker. And it's so amazing because you would think that as the accuracy of these players increases, as they get stronger and stronger, it would be less like poker. But actually, it's becoming more like poker, which is amazing because they know that if they play something standard, their opponent will just know what to do. So instead, they're like basically gambling on the fringes, right? Like if I play this sideline and there's like a 10% chance that they miss this idea, then I could trick them. And that's okay. I remember um, Fabiano Caruana said that in one of his postmortems about a line in the Berlin that he played. And he was like, yeah, most of the time he's going to know like 80%. And then 20, but I prepared this line for the 20% of the time that he doesn't. Yeah. And it's just exactly how a poker player thinks. Yeah. I mean, and then it's also, it just drives home how good the players at the top are because they have to have the confidence that like, if, you know, if the person screws up and you get like a 0.9 <laughs> engine evaluation instead of 0.3 or whatever it may be. I mean, obviously there are cases with, with more extremes than that, but you have to have the confidence that like you're going to execute because you're, because those uh those other times where they know the line and you know in in my conversation with Simon Williams I referred to the the Petrov the first Petrov game in the World Championship between Nepo and Carlson because this was a good illustration of that where uh Carlson just tried this line where if Nepo didn't know it he had very high win probability but if he did know it he had close to zero um and yeah, again, Dubov's imprint could could be seen there, but it's it's definitely interesting to see. And yeah, the the confidence that they show that they will win if the the improbable scenario of the edge occurs is interesting. Now, of course, to answer Han's question about did you yourself apply poker strategies to chess? Obviously, um, you came to poker later than chess, um, so it wouldn't be like for your competitive chess career. But in the work that you do in your lectures. Um, for U.S. chess and, of course, your talks and 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 writing, et cetera, do you do you find any particular um, other like 
advice you could give to people who aren't elite chess players? How can like non-elite chess players use this sort of framework to improve uh, their chess game, to think probabilistically? Well, I think, yeah, thinking about psychology, because poker is so psychological, and sometimes we just, you know, revert to that Bobby Fischer quote that he doesn't believe in chess psychology, he believes in good moves. But of course, we are human, and chess is so emotional. So I think that's really where you can learn from poker players, because they've been studying like mindset for like 10 years, you know, mindset training, because they know how painful it is to lose a big hand and then have to get back on the horse. And I think that until recently, that's something that chess players have been ignoring a bit too much. You know, obviously, again, I think Magnus Carlsen was one of the first to publicly have like mental game training. And now like all the elite players are doing it. And I think even like more um, just players who are trying to improve are pursuing that line. Adult improvers doesn't have to be like an elite grandmaster. And I think that's something that I definitely take a lot from poker that I need to impart that on people. Um, and, you know, to further the the discussion we were having, I remember Fabiano Carana actually took it a step further in his world championship commentary. And he said that he's actually looking for positions where the eval is bad. Right. Yeah. Because, yeah. Because his opponents might not be studying. That. He said that on chess.com. So it's like if eval is bad, so his opponents will look for it. And he feels like, well, he can find a draw. If, if they don't, if they know the line and then they might lose, it's just, it's so much like poker where, you know, you're, you're check raising and like you, you know, that like some portion of the time you're going to have to fold to a re-raise, but uh, you, you're just calculating all of these different permutations and like checking what the equity is. Yeah, exactly. And just to throw in one more bit of advice, and I talked about this in a How to Chess episode with a friend of the pod, Nate Solon, who, of course, also has like an analytics and a poker background. And Nate has uh, written in his Substack, uh, Zwischenzug, and talked about on that pod um, the idea of how you can use uh, something like the Lee Chess Opening Explorer to sort of find hacks where instead of looking to play the best move, you know, you can look at how uh, different openings perform at different rating levels. You can sort for rating level. So you can look at what actually works instead of what's best. Um, and that, you know, that would be called exploitive in the poker realm. But I think that it's underutilized at the, um, you know, club player uh, uh, chess, like the competitive chess player for the club level. Yeah, an excellent point. Absolutely. That uh, using openings, exploring and filtering for ratings is definitely a great idea. Yeah. And, you know, you can obviously go deeper and, uh, you know, similar similar vein when I talk to Jeremy Kane. I mean, stuff like adopting riskier openings for blitz and stuff like that, like whether it's a conscious probability driven choice or not, that certainly the the impact is going to be similar where like there's there's I think there's. Engines are, they're just so strong now that I think that uh, there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of room for improvement about like thinking of how to take advantage of the sort of biases that the engines can um, induce because, you know, in poker, the air quote engines are trying to be non-exploitable, but in chess, like you still need to execute. Um, so it's, uh, it's different um, in, in that regard, but um, but that should be it for the, the poker talk, Jen. I just have a, a, a few more topics um, before we let you go. We know you're super busy. You're, you're, um, 
flying to London tomorrow, as we mentioned. And we do have one more question related to the book, which is from a supporter of the podcast, Jonathan Evans. And Jonathan asks, he says, he says, I'm a chess book collector. Is there a way to get a signed copy of your new book? And he also mentions that he enjoys your podcast, Ladies Night Chess, as do I. And he really enjoyed Chess Bitch. And uh, as actually, let's answer that first. And then I'll ask you answer, ask you his second question. Okay, well, um, there will be ways to get signed copies. Absolutely. I am doing a signing at the London Chess and Bridge Shop. And what I'm going to do when I do these signings is I'm going to sign whatever they have left over so that people can buy them from from the shop um, on usually they're either going in person or online. I'm going to be doing similar signings for US chess at the national events in Memphis and Columbus and also at Q Boutique in St. Louis. That's the uh, World Chess Hall of Fame store. So I will definitely be updating my followers. And then I'm definitely going to find um, a local bookstore in Philadelphia to um, sign a bunch of copies to. Uh, and yeah, just give them a signed stock. <laughs> and I'll, I'll update people on my social medias about where you can get those. And including the uh, Chess Book Collectors group on Facebook, which I just got added to. Oh, wow. Uh, where you been hiding, Jen? I know. <laughs> I know. People, <laughs> it's it's great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's intense. You know, you, do, you don't have to read every post. But yeah, 48,000 members or something. And yeah, lo- lots of great stuff. And I believe a uh, recent guest of the podcast author, Harold Scott, had pinged you somewhere on Facebook asking um, if there's any chance of a, a New York event. Do you any, anything like that in the offing? Or are we going to have to organize that ourselves, Jen? Oh, I'm sure there's going to be something. It's just a matter yeah. of when, you know, because uh, I, New York is a city that I go to the most outside um, St. Louis and then sometimes Las Vegas, but I go to New York quite frequently now. So yeah, I'm definitely going to set something up. Don't worry. And I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you at chess book, book collectors know when I do. Shout okay. out to uh, Dr. Alexi Root, who, who told me I should get there because people are asking questions about my book. Ah, okay. Good, good to know. And Jen, I did want to nail down a few more details about the book's release. Uh, of course, this podcast will come out on International Women's Day, which is a, a great day. And uh, obviously, I'm happy to, you know, we're recording this in advance. But nonetheless, happy International Women's Day, Jen. Happy International Women's Day, everyone. This should be a day that reminds you to read and love and respect women and girls all year round. Yes, yes. Well said. Um, so the paper book available in the UK now, and you say in US, uh, it might be, a, it won't be widely available till June, but might be able to track it down earlier. And again, audiobook and ebook already available. To, but do you have any tips on how someone might track it down prior to June in the United States? Yes. Well, I think if you come to any of those live signings, or if you are around those cities or go to their online shops shortly after my online signings, that would be US Chess sales or Q boutique, uh, there, there might be some extra copies available. So I would, I would look into that. And then of course, if you really want it early, you can just pay like the $8 shipping fee from Amazon UK or books, bookshop.org UK, any kind of UK seller. Oh, okay. That that's a good pro tip. Okay. And getting back to it is hard copy. It is going to be out in paperback as well for people who like paperbacks. I don't know exactly when that is in Australia. I think it starts out in paperback, which is something I never knew, but uh, yes, it's in hardcover first. Okay. Good to know. And getting back to the question from Jonathan Evans, the second part was if you've read Robert B. Tanner's book on Vera Menchik, a biography of the first woman's world chess champion with 350 games. 
Yeah, fantastic um, work by Robert Tanner. I was um, very grateful, actually. That was one of the books that came out um, in the span between Chess Bitch and Chess Queens, which really helped because he uh, dug up so many great games by Vera and um, anecdotes um, that were previously unknown. I mean, it is very, very sad with Vera Menchik that there should be a lot more source material. But in addition to dying so tragically, um, from, as we mentioned earlier, uh, a bomb, Nazi bomb in 1944, all of her papers and score sheets were also destroyed. So it, it's just it's just terrible. And it shows that we really need to do our best to preserve the history that we do have of her. Um, luckily in chess, two people are writing score sheets and they appear in books and tournament bulletins. But uh, yeah, we just, we lost, we lost her so early and we lost so many, um, so much, so much about her as well. And so yeah. I'm grateful to to Robert Tanner for for writing that book. Yeah, I mean, just a fascinating life. I'll have to. I mean, I greatly enjoyed the the section in your book, but I'll have to uh, check out Robert Tanner's book as well. Um, and Jen, the last topic is just we got to get a few more details on this current book project. We can't let you rest on your laurels here with uh, with this book uh, now seeing the light of day. So, and I know this has been in the offing for a while. You've been writing for a while, but but what can you say about uh, your next book project, which I believe is already like they're already announcing it's coming out next year. So no rest for the weary. Exactly. Well, I was working on it, and then I just took a break to work on chess queen. So it's like, that's, that's, that's what I was referring to earlier when I was like, I was scared it wasn't going to be good and that I was going to have to struggle to make it publishable for, and put my name on it. And then I had the opposite problem that I was like, wait, no, I need, now I need to make sure that I make reset as good as, as parts of this. So yeah, I think being a writer is a very psychologically difficult thing. It's, I mean, chess players are listening and chess is psychologically incredibly intense. I think writing is as well. Because you always feel like you're not good enough and you could be better. It's like this oscillation, right? Oh, yeah. it's like an oscillation. In writing, though, something you don't have in chess. Because it's the oscillation like you're either not good enough and you're terrible and you need to be a lot better. Or you're really good and now you're afraid that people are going to ignore you. So it's like <laughs> you're just in this pendulum, this pendulum of agony. Right, yeah. And they're both uh, very sort of very um internally driven activities at least with writing until you actually release the book um it's easy to get in your own head i would imagine and uh you know see ghosts or you know misevaluate um the quality of something you've written in in either direction oh um, your so question. The, oh sorry go ahead yeah i was going to say so the book is called reset could you tell us anything anything else about it yeah i what i want to reset is my mission to um, make chess more inclusive and to talk about how chess is not just a game where you're trying to get as good as possible, but I think you're also trying to enhance your life as much as possible with the, the least amount of effort, right? So I'm trying to like kind of shift the thinking about what it means to be great at chess. It's of course, if you're really good at chess, then you're going to get more opportunities um, to crush people, which feels great and to travel the world, but also um, for people who are at all levels, how can we get the maximum of chess with a minimum amount of time, right? Okay. And that I, I, that is that is a big part of the book. I want to talk about that as like a metaphor for everything we do in life, because chess is really the ultimate metaphor for yeah. for thinking clearly. And um, I want to just have people who read the book give them that kind of gift of you know 
thinking more clearly and thinking about chess in a new way where it's not only about um, your rating, but also about how you use it to improve your life and the lives around people. Excellent. Yeah, so it sounds great. And and to that end, Jen, I mean, obviously, usually I try to get a few chess book recommendations or chess improvement tips. Obviously, you're you're more focused on the the promoting chess, and you do teach chess um, a bit, but not like uh, in the lab working on on your game um, as much as you were as you write about so movingly in Chess Queens. But I am curious, Jen, if there if there you know obviously you you've built a great career. You've really um, done a great job over the years, um, you know, with your books and your podcasts and received so many just accolades. But I'm curious, like, is there anything you're working on now, like in terms of improvement? Uh, I mean, obviously, writing might be the obvious choice. But um, like, what what is it that that you're really working on at the moment in terms of um, improvement? Improvement? Well, you know, it comes from, I think, my work in in poker in a psychological way, I think that one thing that chess allowed me was this ability to be fearless because it's such an uh, such a unmediated experience, right? Like once you get into the flow of a chessboard, you're not using language and you're not interrupted. And I think whether it's like lifting weights or playing poker or writing or you know deciding what your next business move is. Um, I feel like that is something that I want to capture and I want to give to other people like that flow, fearless experience of playing chess, I think is the, the reason why it's as popular as ever right now. Well said. Yeah. I liked your quote in the book and I think you've mentioned this before, but this idea that like sometimes not taking a risk can be the, the biggest risk that one takes. Yes, and certainly people who are in um, finance know that quite well. Um, and, but it, it also it's also so evident in um, maybe not always in the game itself, but in your approach to the game and your approach to poker, chess, life. And as for like concrete improvement tips, something that I, as a writer, um, I really helped me. And I know you have a lot of book lovers and authors and writers who listen to the podcast. Something that really helped me in poker and chess was um, just writing. Um, uh, Even really, really simple things. Like the whole idea of like explaining it to a kindergartner. So even if you're like not going to publish a book about the Sicilian, still like explain to yourself why you're playing these moves. Like as if you were trying to write it for like an eight-year-old. And I was like 2200 when I was doing that. Like, it it was really helpful. Like, just like something so simple, like, I'm like stopping, you know, Bishop E5 check, or I'm like trying to, um, you know, develop my bishop so that I can castle queen side, just a really, really simple things um, really, really helped me because then when somebody deviates in a rapid game, you're able to adjust really quickly. Yeah, that that's great advice. Yeah. And of course, uh, Daniel Kahneman has written about the importance of like a decision journal. And uh, shout out to a friend of the pod, Jesse Cry, who's famous for like his reams of uh, uh, pen and paper analysis about every game. I don't think you need to go as far as him, but certainly, yeah, there's there's no substitute for uh, trying to write down the thought process um, that, that you had during a game and try to poke holes in it where necessary. And at least in my case, um, you've got to do it soon because if I don't do it, like uh, Noel Studer's written about this, who's also been on the show, if you don't do it like right after you play, I'm going to forget what my thought process was. And then it's like, you know, wh- why did I even 
why show up, you know? And then for women and girls, one thing that I talk about in the book a little bit is this uh, oscillation from underconfidence to overconfidence. I think because girls are raised not to brag about themselves as much, um, it's even more important to err on the side of overconfidence. Like, you know, I've guest taught at many of my brother's U.S. chess school events, and I know that the most popular activity for these like eight-year-old 2400s is bug house on the break. Right. Shocker. And I remember I was at a mixed one once and Greg asked who the bug, best bug house player was and every every boy raised their hand. Right. And that, I did the same thing at a girl's one and nobody raised their hand. And these huh. girls were all like 10, 12 years old, 2200. Like they all had every reason to be bombastic about their bug house. Right. <laughs> so I think that it we, we need... We need to be super, super confident um, and when we're, especially when we're entering the arena. Okay. Yeah. Sonia Graf would have raised her hand. So we can, uh, we can uh, learn a lesson from, from what you wrote about her in, uh, in Chess Queens. And, you know, last question, Jen, of course, um, this, uh, I guess you could say, unfortunately, but it's predominantly men who listen to this podcast as uh, there's the great gender imbalance in chess, which is slowly but surely improving, but not as fast as we would like. And of course, it's still different in in any um, in different parts of the world, as you allude to in the book. But just do you have any parting advice for for what men can do to uh, make sure that chess is a welcoming environment for for women chess players? Oh, yeah. I think that it's um, it's great for them to call out abuse and injustice when they see it and also um, to um, be kind to the women in their circles and to, um, you know, look for women who might be interested in playing the game and um, give them some tips, um, especially people that they're they're just like their their family members or their friends who are like a little bit interested in chess and don't know how to get get into it. Like take that extra mile. Because sometimes women um, being underrepresented in the game need a little bit more of a push. Yeah. Okay. Uh, excellent. Well, Jen, I think we are. I think we've we've got it covered. You've got a lot to do. So thanks. It's been great to uh, to catch up. Yeah, this has been so wonderful. And thank you so much for saying nice things about Chess Bitch a few years ago, because that really did kind of like stick with me. Like maybe this book is revivable, and turns out that you were right. And I think that. It's beautiful to see how far you've come with perpetual chess since, um, you know, three three years ago when I was on it. And I think it's about almost five years since it was born. It's easy for yeah. me to remember because I think your podcast is the same age as my son. Yeah, so, yeah. So <laughs> congratulations. And I can't wait for what the next five years will, will bring for you. Oh, well, thanks, Jen. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Perpetual chess wouldn't exist without the Shahadi. So um, so happy for, for your support and shout out to uh, to Mr. Shahadi and Greg as well. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks. And I, I'm guessing listeners know how to track Jen down. You can follow her on Twitter. The The book has a Web page, right, Jen? Um, it does. Chess Queen's book. And we actually have a QR code that will bring you a games library of all the games mentioned in the book as well. So yeah, there's a, a lot of ways for you to find out more about it. Um, and I'll be updating people on that and my other projects at Jen Chahadi on Twitter and Instagram. Excellent. All right. Thanks again, Jen. Safe travels to the UK. Bye, everyone. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. 
Big shout out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, Beneficial1 on Twitter, at Perpetual Chess on Instagram, and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me, ben at perpetualchesspod.com. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters. Those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show going over chess games, answering questions, stuff like that. And you can even get access to ad-free perpetual chess if that's your preference. So, but most of all, thanks to everyone for listening and we will catch you all on the next episode. Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.